The desire of Titus Women is to invite women around the world to know Jesus as their Savior, Center, and Source. May God guide and encourage you through this message. As we get started tonight, um, I, I've had such a fun week, and one of the reasons is because I've had women contacting me all week saying, Cricket, I found this in John. Cricket, this is what Jesus is saying to me. Cricket, this is what we're studying. And it has been such fun to see um, to see the gospel opening up. And, and here's what I want to say to us as we begin Bible study together. That is the beauty of doing Bible study together, right? We're not just in our own brain studying the Bible because sometimes we can see what we want to see or sometimes we see what we see is determined by our personality, our history, our theological persuasion, all those things. But when we study the Bible with one another, all of a sudden it opens the Bible for us in a new way. Um, I was with talking to some college students and I was sharing about John 4, I think. And after we were done talking, I was sharing in a class. Um, after we were done, they came up and started asking me questions. What about this? And I had never thought of the things that they that they suggested. Um, so it's really sweet when we begin to dialogue. I think all Bible study, not all Bible study, I think most Bible study and all theological conversation happens best together. Because we think bigger than ourselves when we're talking with one another. In fact, I was meeting with... Um, Oh, a woman I'm doing Bible study with this morning, and we're, we're working on the book of Acts. And she said she asked a question, and neither of us knew the answer to it. But then as we prayed and talked, all of a sudden, Jesus answered our theological question, and then he gave us a prayer to pray over our families. And that is what I think happens when we get into the word and we get curious and we begin talking with one another and then his Holy Spirit shines light on his word. And then all of a sudden it turns into prayer and other oriented outreach. So I just want to encourage you um, meet. I, I think we should all be meeting together. And then I think around our kitchen tables or around our coffee shop, we should be meeting with one or two other people because there's a power. There's a power in the word of God. And I think he's wanting to quicken our hearts for that. So. Um, and the, oh, the other thing I wanted to say is, I think your personality affects how you read the Bible. So you may say, well, I could never read the Bible like her. I, but that's one of the beauties as well, is that we bring our own personality. And then um, I think that also expands the word of God. So so just as you get into, be encouraged to get in the word of God and then be encouraged to share it with someone else who may see it from, from a little bit of a different perspective. In fact, funny story, Miss Dottie today, and she said to me, Cricket, I have two questions. We don't have time to talk about this. I have two questions. First of all, why was there dust in the temple? And second of all, why did Jesus forgive the woman she didn't ask for forgiveness? And I hadn't thought about either one of those questions in quite that way. <laughs> and so um, and so I, I thought, you know what I did? I went back to my Bible and I thought, okay, I went back to the pictures of the temple. And so some of our Bible study is going to be enhanced because Ms. Dottie asked some questions. So let, let me pray over us as we get started. Jesus, this is your word. And this, this passage of scripture is very important. And so Jesus, I pray you would speak your word to our hearts and you would have full and complete access to do what you want to do in our hearts. So Jesus, we invite you to Bible study tonight. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, before we start, John 8, 1 through 11 is one of the most controversial passages of scripture, not because people don't believe it was an actual event, but because in some of the original manuscripts, this passage is um, missing or um, some of the earliest manuscripts that we have. Um, some believe it was added a little bit later. Um, all believe that this story is canonical, but there are reasons um, that some people are hesitant why it is located here. Now. As I have done my own study, this is what I, now some of the very best theologians of the church believe it's right where it's supposed to be. So we're in good company for studying it in this order here. But for theological reasons, I believe, and, and the way John has written the book, I believe that this is actually a pivotal moment because we're going to be looking at John 7 and 8. Those two chapters go together. They both take place in the temple and they take place during the during the festival of booze or tabernacles, which is actually taking place right now. Um, it's so fun. My brother and his family are there in Israel and this is all being celebrated right now. Um, so that's that's kind of the setting. And those two chapters go together. So as we begin tonight, um, 
fact. I, oh, and then the other thing that's really important that we understand for this passage is that this, the setting for this is in the temple. This story is in the temple. Now, remember the first story, the setting was in a family wedding. The second story was just a one-on-one -on -one conversation with uh, at a well, Jacob's well. Now, I'll just give you a little heads up about what's coming. The next two stories are in a family home, and then at the cross, and then at the empty tomb. I think every location for every story is very important. And uh, But this one happens right smack dab in the middle of the temple. Before we get to John 7 and 8, I have to tell you that the last time Jesus was in Jerusalem, this sets the background story a little bit. The last time is in John 5. In John, remember, John 4 is a Samaritan woman. He's on the way back to, to his home. John 5 takes place in um, Jerusalem. And Jesus is walking by the pool of Bethesda. And we're going to find out that that's important in just a minute. And he comes across a man who's been laying, and he's been laying there for a long time. And he says to the man, right, do you want to be healed? And this is the only character in scripture of a man or a person healed by Jesus I really don't like. I don't like this man. First of all, he's whiny, right? He's like, well, there's no one to help me, no one to help me. He does. He's not straightforward with Jesus. And then the second thing is, as soon as Jesus heals them, um, the Pharisees come and say, who healed you? And he says, I don't know who it was. And then Jesus finds him. Jesus is going to make himself known. And then um, and then, as soon as he finds out it's Jesus, he goes right to the Pharisees and tells. And that becomes the moment the Pharisees decide we want to kill him. So chapter five, they want to kill Jesus. And they want to kill Jesus for two reasons. He breaks the Sabbath. And he calls God his father and he makes himself equal with God. So that's what's happened in Jerusalem. And then he goes in chapter six, he goes back up to the Sea of Galilee. Now think of all these, all these trips through Samaria. I just wanted you to keep that in your mind. He's going back and forth through Samaria. Um, he returns to the Sea of Galilee in John six and he feeds the 5,000 and then he walks on the water. Okay. And then the crowd tries to make him king, right? Remember the next morning he goes up to pray and the sends the disciples on, he walks on the water and then they wake up the next morning and say, where is he, where is he, where is he? And how did he get there? And, and then they come and they say, we want to make you king. We want to make you king. And he says, wait a minute, you want me to be king because I gave you food. And then he says, labor for the food that endures to eternal life. And then he says these amazing words. I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall never hunger and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. And then in 651, he says, I am the living bread that has come down for heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread that I give um, is my, that I give for the life of the world is my flesh. My favorite theologian is from Yale. And he has a podcast and it's called For the Life of the World. And it's not just for Christians. He has an institute at Yale for people of faith and how to live lives that reflect their faith in the world. But his podcast is called For the Life of the World, which is kind of an undercover witness to Jesus, right? What is the life of the world? The body of Jesus. I, I love I love the creativity there. Um, so what is Jesus says? I am the living bread. And whoever, so the first in John 5, they want to kill him. In John 6, they want to crown him. And that's the background for where we are. Now, this story takes place in the temple. And but I kind of want you to get an idea of where this takes place. Remember the first two have been um, in out of the way places. And now this event with this woman occurs here. And no matter whether people believe it happened um, at this place in the story, they do believe that it happens here. This is the temple or a model of the temple um, where Jesus would have taught. Okay, so this is kind of the court of the Gentiles, okay? Side, the court of, this is South Portico, where John, Jesus speaks in John 10. Okay, this is the court of the Gentiles outside, and the golden gate where you would enter right there. Okay, um, and then this is, all, this is the court of the women right here. And then the smaller court is the court of the priests. So you're going to, the court of the women is where this story is going to take place. Right here in front of the steps, in front of these doors. And these doors are going to open, and then it's going to be uh, in just a minute. These doors are going to open, and then you enter the holy place, which is where the priest would go, where the altar, uh, where the water is, right? Where the water 
poured out continual water and then um, into the holy place and then into the holy of holy. This building was 15 stories high. It was made of gold and marble. This is where it stood. This is where it was. So that is the temple. That is where the story takes place. I think this is very significant. So you have the outer courts um, are the courts of the Gentiles. The courts of the women is where this story takes place. Um, and then the courts of the priests and then the holy place. Uh, this Hebrew word with the, the mitzvah is where the altar, where all the sacrifices were made. So this, this is important to set the scene for this story. Okay, so this story takes place. Now, this is all background. This is all our context, but I do think it's very important. Is during the taber Feast of Booze, the tabernacle. If you want to study it more, it's Leviticus 23. Um, and so, and it's, it, or, and now it's called Sukkot is the, um, is the Hebrew word for it. And these are the things celebrated, celebrating God's faithfulness in the wilderness when they lived in booze, right? Little lean-tos. And um, they would set them up and every, and they still do this. Like Billy and Joe, when they went to Israel, they would say, you can rent this apartment and there's a patio where you can build your booze. So this is still taking place today. They celebrated God's faithfulness in the wilderness, God's provision at the end of harvest, it happened at the end of harvest, and then God's presence, he wanted to live with them. And uh, so there's the, the, the top of the hut is open so they can see the stars, they celebrate his faithfulness. It's seven day feast. So it starts on a Sabbath and it ends on a Sabbath, two days of rest. And then the eighth day afterwards is also a day of feasting. So it's really an eight day celebration. Um, and everyone comes, right? And so there are three things that I want us to have in our minds that this makes this kind of a pivotal moment for John 7 and John 8. This is what's happening. First of all, it's a celebration. It is bring your best fruits, bring your best branches. It is a celebration um, of God's provision um, on the for that year, but also God's provision in the past, which makes it different from every other harvest. It's not a harvest festival. It's a celebration of God's goodness. Um, it's also a celebration of light. And so on one night of the feast, the Jews would light torches and they would carry the torches around the temple. And for seven days, um, you were to bring an offering of fire to Yahweh. And then on the eighth day, um, there was to be this holy assembly and bring another offering of fire. Okay. And then water is pivotal in this. And the women were allowed to come into the courtyard and to see this part of the ceremony. A priest would go to the pool of Siloam, right? Which is the pool of Bethesda. It is the same, right? So they would go and get water in a golden jug and they would bring it back to the temple and they would pour it, you know, that altar, that that, that water um, uh, basin, that they would pour it there and uh, pour it on the altar, okay? So the water of life, the living water, was a symbol of this Jewish festival. So you're already, um, I'm sure, in your hearts and in your minds, you're already understanding where this is going as Jesus comes to John 7. Okay, that's what's happening. Let's look at John 7. We're just going to read, I'm going to read a little passage, and um, then we're going to, um, then I'm just going to say one word about about. Um after this, this is verse one. After this, Jesus went about in Galilee. He would not go about in Judea because the Jews were seeking to kill him, right? Because of our John 5 man. Now the Jews, feast of booze was at hand. So his brother said to him, leave here and go to Judea that your disciples may also see the works you are doing for no one works in secret who wants to be known openly. If you do these things, show yourself to the world for not, his, his, not even his brothers believed in him. And Jesus said to them, my time has not yet come. Your time is always here. The world cannot hate you, but it hates me. Because I testify that its works are evil. You go to the feast. I am not going up to this feast for my time has not yet come. After saying this, he remained in Galilee. And his brother, um, so, so this is the first thing I think what Jesus wants us to say. He come, when, this is what I want us to see from John 7. In John 7, if you can say one word, what is happening in John 7, it's muttering. You're going to find all these little side conversations. People are muttering, muttering, muttering. Who is Jesus? That is the number one question of John 7 and 8. It really is not about the woman caught in adultery. It really is this. Who in the world is Jesus? 
And here's what I want to say, and this is true for John 7, but it is also true for our own lives. We're going to do our practical application as we go. Um, When Jesus comes, he comes on his own time and he comes in his own way. And there was a steadfastness of purpose. He knew what he was called to. And the sarcasm of his brothers and the unbelief of his brothers did not deter him. And I do want to say this because um, I think um, he did not try to explain himself to his brothers. He did not do what they told him to do. Remember in Psalm 18, with the merciful, you will show yourself merciful. With the blameless, you will show yourself blameless. With the pure, you will show yourself pure. With the shrewd, you will show yourself devious. And that is what you see here. He's not going to be controlled by his brothers, nor is he going to let their agenda or their sarcasm control him. He knows what he's called to do, and he's going to do it. And I will tell you, if we are pure in heart, if our hearts are open before the leader of Jesus, his heart will be open to us. But if we try to play games with him, he will not allow it. And we are going to see that in John 7 and John 8. When he comes, he comes as Lord. When he comes, he comes in control and nothing no none of our plans or plottings which we're going to see um effective that's the first thing then the next thing after his brothers had gone up to the feast this is verse 10 he also went up not publicly but in private and the jews were looking for him at the feast and saying where is he this is the mutter the muttering starts and there was much muttering about him among the people some said he's a good man others said no he's leading the people astray Yet for fear of the Jews, no one spoke openly about him. But about the middle of the feast, so about midweek, Wednesday, Jesus went up into the temple and began teaching. So think about the picture of the temple. He went right up into the courts and began teaching. And they said how the Jews marveled. And they said, how is it this man has learning? He's never studied. And then Jesus says this, my teaching is not mine, but his who sent me. If anyone's will is to do God's will, he will know whether my teaching is from God or whether I'm speaking on my own authority. The one who speaks on his own authority seeks his own glory. But the one who seeks the glory of him who sent him is true. And in him, there is no falsehood. So Jesus comes up to the steps of the temple. He doesn't stay on the outside. He knows they're seeking to kill him. He walks right smack dab into the middle of the temple and he starts teaching. And he starts teaching in such a way that everyone knows he has authority. And they say, where in the world? Where in the world? When he comes, he comes with authority. And what is when they ask him about it, what does he say? My father who sent me is true. There is no falsehood in him. When Jesus comes into our lives as teacher, (laughs) he comes, there's no falsehood in him. And then what happens? They say, you must have a demon. Verse 19. Has not Moses given you the law, yet none of you keeps the law? Why do you seek to kill me? And they, the crowd said, you have a demon. Who is seeking to kill you? And Jesus said, I did one deed and you marvel at it. And that is the, that's the healing from John 5. Moses gave you circumcision and you circumcise a man on the Sabbath. If on the Sabbath a man may receive circumcision, so that the law of Moses may not be broken. Are you angry with me because on the Sabbath I made a man's whole body well? When Jesus comes, he makes people whole. And that's what made them so mad. He made someone whole and he made them whole on a Sabbath. He broke their ceremonies. He broke their rules. And and they were, he knew that the reason everybody was in turmoil was because of what he had done by the pool in John 5, right? So when he comes, he makes them whole. And when he comes, he also fulfills all the Old Testament symbol and all the religious ceremony. Remember when we talked about last last week, the river flows backwards as well as forwards. Um, in the book of Hebrews, it talks about it's not the blood of bulls and goats who save people from their sin in the Old Testament. It's the blood of Jesus, right? That the symbol, the, the, the blood of the bulls and goats was simply the symbol of what was going to happen in Jesus. That's how this whole story works. Jesus is the fulfillment of all that goes before. And so Jesus says, um, I'm, I am here to fulfill all that is taking place in this tabernacle of booths, right? God took care of them in the wilderness. God has come to live among them. God is the light of the world and God is living water. And then what does he say? Um, well, then they get kind of, flustered and uh, this is what they said the pharisees heard the crowd muttering about him again and they sent officers to arrest him i love this part of the story and then jesus said i will be with you a little longer and then i'm going to him who sent me 
You will seek me, but you will not find me. Where I am, you cannot come. And the Jews said to him, where is he going? Does he intend to go among the Greeks? What does he mean by saying you will seek me, but you will not be able to find me? And on the last great day of the feast, right? So this is day seven. The great day, Jesus stood up and cried out, if anyone is thirsty, let him come to me. Whoever believes in me, as the scriptures have said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Now this he said about the spirit, whom those who believed in him were to receive, for as yet the spirit had not been given, because Jesus was not yet glorified. So when he comes, he comes. Remember the symbol, they got the pitcher of water and they poured it on the altar, the living water of God. That was the heart of this celebration. And Jesus stands up and says, I am the living water. I am the fulfillment of all the ceremonies, of all the religious ritual. I am the ceremony of all the historical past. All the fulfillment of that is in me. I am the author and the giver of life. I want you to think about how radical it is what he's saying, right? (laughs) When he comes, he comes as king of kings. He comes as the creator. He comes as the author. He comes as the fulfillment of all that's gone before. He comes to make himself known. And then, and then uh, when they heard these words, they're still muttering. When they heard these words, they said, this really is the prophet. But then others said, no, this is the Christ. And then some said, is the Christ to come from Galilee? Didn't the scripture say that Christ comes from the offspring of David and from Bethlehem, the village where David was? So there was division among the Jews because of him. Some of them wanted to arrest him, but no one laid a hand on him. The officers then came to the chief priests and Pharisees who said to them, why did you not bring him to us? And the officers answered and said, this is my favorite line, no one ever spoke like this man. And the officers answered, I mean, the Pharisees answered, have you been deceived? Has any of the authorities or the Pharisees believed in him? But this crowd that does not know the law is accursed. Nicodemus, who had gone to him before and who was one of them, said to them, does our law judge a man without first giving him a hearing and learning what he does? And they said, are you from Galilee too? Search the scriptures. No prophet arises from Galilee. They send the officers to arrest him. The officers can't arrest him. And what I love is this. The disciples, his, his brothers don't have power over him. The crowd doesn't have power over him. The Pharisees don't have power over him. The soldiers don't have power over him. He comes to make himself known. He comes as omnipotent one with power over all. And uh, I love the picture of Nicodemus. And so this would be a worth a study. If you go back and look at John 3, where Jesus talks to Nicodemus at night, and then Nicodemus kind of sticking his head, his voice up here saying, wait a minute, wait a minute, let's not condemn him without a hearing. And then, you know, the next place Nicodemus appears is at the burial of Jesus. And I think what you see in Nicodemus's life, right, is this growing awareness, this deep desire and hunger um, for Jesus. And uh, so I love, I love that he's, he's listening in right here. And he comes to make himself now. And then, then this is what happens. Then in 8 the a.m., 753, everyone went to his own house, but Jesus went up to the Mount of Olives. Now, this is kind of a fun thing because um, you know the Mount of Olives, where the Mount of Olives is, where it is in scripture. It's at the base of the Mount of Olives is the Garden of Gethsemane. And at the top of the Mount of Olives is where Jesus ascends from. So it's really interesting to me that after this conflict, right, this he's made himself known in the temple in a way that he hadn't done with more authority than he has shown um, over all that has gone before and all the Jewish history and all the religious past. And he takes his place with authority right there in the temple. And then he goes up and spends the night with his father. The disciples go to their homes. Everybody goes to their homes. And Jesus goes up on the Mount of Olives from where he will ascend to his father. I think that's so tender. And he spends the night there with his father. And then early in the morning, early in the morning, um, in eight two, he comes again to the temple. And the people come to him and he sat down and taught them. And the scribes and the Pharisees brought a woman who had been caught in adultery and placed her in the midst. And they said to her, teacher, this woman has been caught in the act of adultery. Now, the law of Moses commands us to stone such women. What do you say? This they said to test them, that they might have some charge to bring against them. And Jesus bent down 
and he wrote with his finger on the ground. And as they continued to ask him, he stood up and said, let him who is without the first stone, let him who is without sin among you be the first to throw a stone at her. And once more, he bent down and wrote on the ground. And when they heard it, they went away one by one, beginning with the older ones. And Jesus was left alone with a woman standing before him. And Jesus stood up and he said to her, woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? And she said, no one, Lord. And he said, neither do I condemn you. Go and sin no more. And then he said, again, Jesus said, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness. I don't think we can divide 11 and 12. They go together. So what do you have? Now, I want to say this at the outset before we just this story. John 7 and 8 are about Jesus's confrontation with the Pharisees. And this woman is caught in the middle. Now she's caught in her own sin. And this, more than last week's story, this woman is actually caught in her own sin. She has a sin of unfaithfulness. She has a sin of desire. She's broken covenants and we don't know her story. But she's also caught in the trap of a power play. And I read in my reading about this story, um, it, it very well may be that this situation was set up to trap, well, it was set up to trap Jesus, but her um, the, catching her in adultery may have been something that they knew about, and then they used to their own advantage, um, wanting to trap Jesus. Now, if you say, I don't think that's, I think that's far-fetched, I will tell you this, just think of Judas, right? Pharisees, this is a plot similar to that, an attempt to get Jesus and to destroy him. And she's caught. She's caught in the victim of others, a plot of other people an instrument in the hands of people in power. Her humiliation comes in the house of God and she has a threat of impending doom. Now, I want to stop here and say, we're going to look at this from two angles. She is caught in her sin. And I think that is the easiest thing Jesus has to handle in this story. He doesn't take sin lightly. However, no sin is beyond the reach of Jesus. And that's what we're going to see. But the power play that would use a woman in this way, can you think of the temple that we just saw? A woman brought in, in front of the crowd, made, not the man, just the woman brought to humiliation. Now, this is what happened. Women at that a woman caught in adultery would not have been stoned to death. They were not allowed to, to kill anyone, right? That's why the Romans killed Jesus. So they were using this... Um, they were using this to try to see what he would say, whether he'd elevate the law of Moses or whether he would be harsh on the woman. They, she was simply caught in their design. I want to say this. And oh, and I want to talk about this picture. So I wish, I wish you could have, I wish you could have been part of the conversation before about these pictures and the women in John. They started about two years ago as we began to dream about this Bible study. And we would sit at the table at FAS and I would say, she would say, what do you say? See, and then I would kind of tell her and then she would sketch it out. Well, then as Lord to work on them, you would not believe the things that happened in her life, right? <laughs> her father went to heaven. She had about five grandbabies. She had, she had one thing after another thing, so many opportunities for ministry. She couldn't keep up. And she said, cricket, I might have to sketch out the last couple ones. And then, and then she worked so hard to finish it. And this one was the last one, kind of. And it is the one most most in sketch format. But I want to say, I think Jesus ordered it. Because a woman caught in shame looks exactly like this woman, right? There's a, there, you, can, you can read the pain on her face, but it's all clouded. And then her accusers stand behind her. The background blurs. I'm, ex I'm sure that is exactly what was happening in her mind. Like, I cannot even make sense of what's happening. Like, when I go, you know, when you have a trauma response and all of a sudden everything seems to go blurry and all she can see is, the, you know, the accusers. And then in just a minute, you'll see Jesus and he's clear. The shame. Some of us are caught in situations of shame, either of our own making through sin or because of the sin of other people. And I think this story is a sign of hope. What does Jesus do with our shame? And that he does not leave us in our shame. And I will tell you, in the most public way, this woman was humiliated. And she wasn't even humiliated for her own. She was humiliated as a means to another's end, which is even more evil, if that's possible. Uh, it's even double evil. How about that? Um, so there she stands before Jesus. 
This is where it takes place, right? Right there in the court. But this is the conference. This is a power play. And what does Jesus do with power? He's the light of the world. He's the lamb who takes away the sin of the world. He's the one that all of Jewish history had been waiting for. He's the bridegroom. He's the living presence of God. He's the beloved son. How does he handle power? And here's what I think. This is the heart of the atonement. And I think his posture is the posture of God the Father. He bends down. And what happened in the Garden of Eden? And there was a rupture in God's relationship with his people. And from Genesis 12, to this moment, right, to the moment of the incarnation, God has been planning this moment, planning, saying, I'm going to bend down to my people. Now, if you think this is a posture of weakness, let me tell you, this is the way God works. This is how it's planned. Now, I want to read Psalm 18, 9 through 19, because sometimes we think, uh, what does it mean when God bends down? And I want, to, I want to read two passages of scripture that I think will help us. In my distress, I called upon the Lord and cried out to my God, and he heard my voice from his temple, and my cry came before him, even to his ears, and he bowed the heavens also and came with darkness under his feet. And he rode upon a cherub and flew, and he flew upon the wings of the wind, and he thundered from heaven, he uttered his voice, hailstones and coals of fire. He sent out his arrows and scattered the flow, lightnings in abundance, and he vanquished them. He sent from above and he took me. He drew me out of many waters. He delivered me from my strong enemy, from those who hated me. They were too strong for me. They confronted me in the day of my calamity, but the Lord was my support. He brought me out into a broad place. He delivered me because he delighted in me. And how does he do it? Let this mind be in you, which is also in Christ Jesus, who being in the form of God, did not consider it robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation, taking the form of a servant and coming in the likeness of men. And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself, became obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. And I should have written, therefore God has highly exalted him and given him the name above every name, that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow. The heart of the atonement is that God rends heaven, bends low, sends his son. Does he send him like this? I'm going to destroy this way. I'm going to destroy the evil. No, he sends him as a little baby. And he comes to Mary and he says, you're going to bear my son. And through that weakness will come the savior of the world. He bends low. He enters in. And that is what, that is what I think. As we look at this picture, he bends down before the woman. Think of how embarrassed she would have been if he had looked her eye to eye. He does not demand eye contact with her. He sees her. He bends low. He's lower than her shame. He goes lower than her hurt. He goes lower than her humiliation. He bends down before the Pharisees, not as a sign of weakness, because he will not play their game. And he, they've come as this confrontation. And you'll see in John 8, they want to go head to head with Jesus. And he says, I'm not going head to head with you. He bends low because the Father bends low to save this world. I think that is the heart of the incarnation. And I think Jesus is enacting it right here in his posture. And then he stands up and he says, let him who is without sin throw the first stone. Now, here's the funny thing. There's only one there who's without sin. His name is Jesus. And he's not throwing stones. And then he bends back down. And it's almost like it's happening in slow motion, right? They're quiet. Now, here's what they know. They are caught. I want to say this. They are, the Pharisees know that they've been caught. They're not actually legally allowed to stone her. And they also know they are guilty. So before God and before the law, they are caught in a trap that they have created. And they cannot do either. They cannot hurt this woman. The oldest know it fastest and first. And they begin to back their way out. Then the young zealots who are hanging on, right? Like, like Saul, right? One by one, and that the scripture says, one by one, they begin to back away. They've been caught in their own trap. I think it's interesting to think about the disciples. I think it's interesting to think about the crowds as they watch this showdown, right, between the Pharisees and between Jesus. And then Jesus stands up. And uh, 
I think what I think that he wants to say this to our hearts as he faces as he faces this woman. Um, this is what he has. There's no sin beyond the reach of Jesus. There's no unfaithfulness too great for him. His love goes deeper than the deepest stain and covers all our sin. And whether or not we're talking about the sin of Nicodemus, who's looking on saying, could this be for me? Or the sin of the woman, whether it's the sin of the legalism of the men or and the, the evil plotting of the men or the sin of the woman, Jesus is saying there is another answer. And I am the answer. And so here's what he says. Woman, where are your accusers? Has no one condemned you? And I love her answer. She says, no one, Lord. Now, Paul didn't ask me that question. I said, okay, why does he offer forgiveness if she hasn't asked for it? And so I went back and I looked at the places in John where where the, where the Jesus is called Lord. And they're really interesting. Um, and this is not exhaustive. These are just some. When, the, when people call Jesus Lord in the Gospel of John, they're always talking to him um, like, Lord, give us this bread. Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. Lord, I believe. Lord, behold. And if, when we get to Martha's story, you're going to laugh because she says, Lord, over and over. Like, Lord, what about this? Lord, what about this? Lord, I believe. Lord, all the things, right? She's saying it to him constantly. Um, and then John 13, Lord, Peter says, Lord, will you wash my feet? Every person who calls Jesus Lord is in a relationship with him and is wanting what he has to offer and is trying to understand who he is. Every single one. And then, and then in how does the book of John end, right? Remember the resurrection happens and Jesus appears to the disciples. And then he comes and he says, and, and, and Thomas isn't there, right? And I love that he comes back for Thomas. He says, you're doubting. It's okay. I'll come back for you. Feel my hands, feel my side, feel my feet. And then Tom, what, are, what are the final witness in the book of John is Thomas says to him, my Lord, my God. So here's what I think. When she, if she had been defiant or unrepentant, she would not have answered him here. But she says, no one, Lord. And I think that was all that Jesus needed to say. Neither do I condemn you. Go and sin no more. He saw her. He protected her. He rescued her. He spoke to her and he did not condemn her. And she turned around and walked out of that courtyard free. And any woman caught in shame, caught in sin, caught in victimization by another, Jesus says, I want to set you free. And do you know what I think the devil always wants to do, especially for those of us who raised in the church? I think he wants us to get so worried about if we're doing it right and guilt and performance and insecurity that we just can never kind of get out of that. He wants to set us free. He wants us to walk out of the temple free. The king of kings has set me free. I am free. And actually my performance is not what matters. What matters is Jesus is Lord and he's Lord over me. And he said, where I have no accusers, not even myself, not even my own guilty conscience. And this is what Paul says. What shall we say? If God is for us, who can be against us? He did not spare his own son, but gave him up. Will he not also with him give us all things? Who can bring any charge against God elect? It is God who justifies. Who is he who to come down? Christ Jesus is the one who died and was raised, who is at the right hand of the Father, interceding for us. I love that. I remember when all of a sudden I thought, I could have a line of accusers from here all the way to China. And it wouldn't matter. God says, she's mine. She's covered by my blood. And the accusers melt away. So I want to say this to you tonight. If you declare Jesus as the Lord, the accusers melt away. He conquers them. He is Lord. He has authority. He has authority to say, you may not harass her anymore. She is mine. She's declared me Lord. And for any of us, right, that struggle with that, say, Jesus, you are Lord, Lord of my past, Lord of my future, Lord of all of it. And Jesus says, as when we begin to acknowledge him as who he really is, all of a sudden he sets us free. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Tribulation, distress, persecution, famine, danger, nakedness of the sword? No. In all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. I am persuaded that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, the powers that be, the powers over us, the powers of darkness, 
nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. That is the Pauline passage that matches this moment in history. And then as she is walking out of the, of the temple, Jesus says these words, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but have the light of life. Does he say, stay away from the darkness? No. He says, follow me. If you walk with me, you will walk in the light. Ladies, what is our job? It is to fall in love with Jesus, to declare him Lord, and to walk with him. And then we walk in the light. And do you know what happens in the light? His joy, his peace, his strength, his direction. When we walk with him, all of a sudden, the way opens up. The path of the righteous is like shines brighter and brighter until the perfect day. We are women of hope. No matter our story, we are women of hope because we declare Jesus is Lord. And I believe with all my heart that this, this passage is here. Um, this, path, this woman is the example, right, of all that's taking place in John 7 and 8. And Jesus says, she is the illustration of what I can do in every life when I come as the water, <laughs> the living water, and as I come as the light of the world. And then John 8. And I will tell you, John 8, she walks out of the story free. And then Jesus goes head to head with the Pharisees. And guess who's on the offensive this time? It's Jesus, not the disciples. I mean, not the Pharisees. And if you read, sometimes John 8 is a little hard to wrap your mind around because it's not a back and forth logical exposition. It's a fight, right? <laughs> and they are making accusations about him. And then he points them consistently back to the father. And I want to, but I, I think it's important because they want power in terms of control. They want to do it the way they're expecting. They want to do it according to their religious ceremony. They want to do it according to their religious form. And Jesus says, I want to blow all that up. And I want to show you the face of God the posture of God, the heart of God for his entire world. Are you willing to see who I really am? And do you know what? The amount of time he spends talking to the Pharisees is such that he wanted to win the Pharisees' hearts. And more than anything, he wanted to win the hearts of the Jewish people. These are my people. I've come to dwell with them. He wanted them to know. And these, these theological dialogues in John are to say that I love this people. And so what do the Pharisees say in John? They say, you're a witness. You're bearing witness of yourself and your witness is not true. And Jesus said, even if I do bear witness about myself, my testimony is true. I know where I came from and I know where I'm going. You do not know who I am. You judge me according to the flesh. I judge no one. But even if I did judge, my judgment is true. Right? So his judgment on her, his judgment on them. My judgment is true. For it is not I alone who judge, but the Father who sent me. In your law, it is written that the testimony of two men is true. I am the one who bears witness about myself, and the Father who sent me bears witness about me. So the first thing they say is, your testimony isn't true. He says, my testimony is true, my judgment is true, and God the Father bears witness of me. As we think of it in light of the woman, right, who's just walked away free, we have this sense. Jesus says, the words that I speak are true, and they're true to life. And whenever the devil tries to harass you or send you back into insecurity or fear, this is what you can say. The testimony of Jesus is true. The judgment of Jesus is true. And he sent my accusers away. And then they say to him, where is your father? And he says, you don't know me or my father. And then least listen to these statements that he makes. You will seek me, but you will die in your sin. You cannot come where I am going. You cannot come where I am going. Unless we acknowledge Jesus as Lord, we cannot come to the Father. And then he says, you are of this world. I am not of this world. You will die in your sins unless you believe that I am he. So the statement he makes to the Samaritan woman, he makes here to them, I am he. And then they say this, this, is, this sums up seven and eight. Who are you? Do you know what I love? <laughs> they say, who are you? And uh, verse 25, and then Jesus says, just what I've been telling you from the beginning. And then he says this funny thing. I have been telling, I have much to say about you and much to judge. But he who sent me 
is true. And every time they try to say, who are you? And he always deflects to his father. He said, you know, when you're going to know who I am, when you've lifted me up on the cross, then you're going to know that I am me. I do nothing on my own authority. My father is with me. He has not left me alone. As we begin to see Jesus begin to defend who he is and explain who he is and say it in the in the temple of his father, right, to the to the ones who are supposed to be the representatives of his father, it gets stronger and stronger and stronger. And then he says in, in verse 31, so Jesus said to the Jews who believed in him, if you abide in my words, you truly are my disciples and you will know the truth and the truth will set you free. And I think that's the best example of our woman caught. She's no longer caught. She's free. She knows the truth. The truth is Jesus is Lord. The truth is Jesus has authority over all her accusers. The truth is she has been freed to walk um, in new life. And they said, we are offspring of Abraham. We've never been enslaved to anyone. How is it you say you will become free? And then Jesus answered that. Think about her sin and theirs. Truly, I say to you, everyone who commits sin is a slave to sin. The slave doesn't remain in the father's house, but the son remains forever. So if the son sets you free, you will be free indeed. I think that is the most beautiful, right? The heart of the atonement, if the son sets you free. And that's who Jesus declares himself to be. And then you go back and forth between this, um, whose son are you? And um, it's really interesting. He says, you are not Abraham's children. If you were Abraham's children, you'd be doing what Abraham did, but you seek to kill me. And then he, this is how he described himself, a man who told you the truth, the truth I heard from God. That's not what Abraham would have done. If God were your, and then they say, well, we're, we're our, our, our father is God. And he said, if God were your father, you would love me. I came from God and I'm going to. So there's a sense they try to say Abraham's our God. They try to say the father's our God. And then he says to them, you are of your father, the devil. And this is the strongest statement he makes in John about the Pharisees. Your will is to do his desire. He's a murderer. He has nothing to do with the truth. When he lies, he speaks according to his nature. He can't help but lie. That is who he is. Now, ladies, I think there are a lot of women in our churches and maybe even ourselves. And we live by lies. And we say them over to ourselves. And we um, we maybe somehow, some kind of woundedness has created a lie in our inner heart. And I want us to say, Jesus wants to set us free. And one of the prayers I think we need to be praying, are there places of shame in my life? Are there any lies that I'm believing? Because he's the God who sets us free. And what do we have to do to be set free? We have to just call and believe that he's Lord. And then we have to abide in him, to walk with him. And then we walk in the truth. And then they say to him, you have a demon. Are you greater than our father Abraham? Who do you make yourself out to be? All right, you're not yet 50 years old and have you seen Abraham? And then he says this, before Abraham was, I am. Probably 10 or 15 years ago, I had my pastor call me and he said, there's a woman at our church and she has a lot of questions and I'd love for you to meet with her to talk about some questions. So we would get together every week and she was wrestling with her faith and wrestling to understand whether or not she wanted to believe in Jesus. And uh, one day I got a phone call and she said, cricket. Well, and, and our conversations were really not super effective, <laughs> except I maybe I got her in the word. I don't know. But one day she said, cricket, have you ever read John 8? And I was like, John 8, John 8, what's John 8? And then all of a sudden she said, cricket. John 8, 58, Jesus said to them, truly, I say to you before Abraham was, I am cricket. He was there at the beginning cricket. He wrote the whole story cricket. He's the savior of the world, I believe. And that was it. She said, I think every church should use that verse to prove Christianity is true. Isn't that interesting? Before Abraham was, I am. I am. And now here's one of the clues that this was actually part of the original text. They picked up stones to throw at Jesus. So John 8 starts and they want to stone her. And John 8 ends and they try to stone him. But who has the power? Jesus. As we look tonight as the practical implications of all this. I want us to take it seriously because as we set up this for next week, the next week is 
there's a happiness to next week. Martha is my favorite character. And there's there's a joy about her story. But we are getting closer and closer to the cross. And this is kind of the heart of it. As Jesus kind of goes head to head with the forces that want to destroy him. And he makes this bid for their hearts. And I think we either are wounded women or we are women who are wounding others. And I think for either one of us, we want to be women who are free. We don't want to do either one of those things. And it may be that you are in a church and there has been wounds, right? There has been shame. There has been your own sin. And uh, the thing about sin is we always get caught. I used to laugh about my kids because however much they try to hide, somehow I would always find out about what was going on. That, that is the way with sin. Sin makes us stupid. Sin is caught. If we're living in sin, Jesus says, I can set you free. I can. I come as the great I am. I come as the light of the world. I come as the giver of life and living water. I can set you free. But if you've been wounded and there are places of shame, or if you know you have wounded others, and we are very, we want to pretend that that is not what we do, but women, do we gossip? Do we triangular? Do we cut people out? Do we say, well, you're not doing this, this, and this? Do we say, or do we say that, that Jesus is open and welcome to anyone, no matter your hurts, no matter your past? Are we making judgments around on other women? Are we making judgments on younger women in our churches who are trying to follow Jesus and are losing their way? Are we opening our arms and saying, if you, if you are welcome in this space, Jesus wants to, us to take this very seriously. Because what if at this point, instead of bringing her in, the Jews have said, would you tell us a little bit more about who you are? We're trying to understand. It seems like you might be the son of God, but it blows our minds. Would you just talk to us? What if more like Nicodemus had come and said, what does it mean to be born again? What does it mean that you're the light of the world? Wait a minute, talk to us. And as they got close to Jesus, what would have happened then? We want to be women who just keep coming to Jesus and saying, Jesus, you keep setting us free so that what we're sharing with other people is not, we're not wounding others. We're actually sharing the love of Jesus. So do you have any sins that you're hiding? Let them come to the light. Remember like last week, a Samaritan woman, Jesus just said, how many husbands do you have? <laughs> just bring it to the light. Do you have any shame you're hiding? Shame inflicted by others that just needs to come to the light. Have you been humiliated by God's people or in God's house? And if that's your story, Jesus wants to say, that is not my intent. My house is to be a safe place. My house is to be a house of prayer for the nations. My house is not to be a place where power plays take place. It is not to be the place of self-seeking. And we have seen so much of that in our American church. Almost every big church we can think of has known scandal after scandal. And not just the big churches. God says, I want my house to be safe. I want my house to be clean. Are you willing for him to save? As we go, and I want us to think about some of these questions, but do you play power games with God, with God's people, with ministry, with church? What do you do with your disappointment? If you don't bring your disappointment, your strengths, your weaknesses, your privileges, your lack to Jesus, do you know what will happen? It will become resentment or insecurity inside of you. How do we handle the hard things in life? We just keep coming into his presence. Keep coming into his presence. And what do we say to him? Jesus, your Lord, whatever, whenever, wherever, however, Jesus, you are Lord. This happened to me just last week. And I've said it before, but just last week, something came up. And I knew instantly there was a, oh no, oh no. And then I was, then I said, he reminded me, cricket, palms up, hands down. Who's Lord? I said, Jesus, I trust you. You get to be Lord. Are you stuck in a religious path that refuses entry to Jesus because you have all the answers or because you know the right ways to do it? Think about the things he said. They said, what about the Sabbath? He said, my father is working still. Instead of, instead of us just doing things the way we've always done and say, this is the way it has to be done. Let's look into his face. Let's love him. And let's say those, and this is one thing I think sometimes those who know the most are most in danger of missing him. And I will tell you this in my own story. 
probably I have every reason to be a Pharisee, right? I was raised in a home, right? Everybody loved Jesus. I was raised in a community where everybody talked about Jesus. I was raised in intellectual institutions that talked about Jesus. But do you know what? When I was 13 years old, Jesus met me and it had nothing to do with my family and it had nothing to do. It was on, it was skipping down a road. And I said, I can't do this. And he said, oh, but I can. And he met me in that way, in that moment, and it changed my life. He changed my life. And then he met me again at 27, 35, and now again at 50. And I'll tell you this, they're my pivot moments. They're the moments where I've gone back to him and he said, "Let's. I want, I want to do something new for you, Cricket. I want to do something new. Therefore, I have four in my life. Not full surrender moments. That happened at 13, really. But there are moments where Jesus said, I want, I want you to think beyond yourself. I want you to think bigger. I want you to think, I want you to see me in a new light. And all of a sudden, my paradigm shifted and my world changed. It, the more knowledge you have about Jesus, the greater danger you are of missing his face. Unless we have those moments, right? We say, no, it's that moment, right? It's because of that moment. Um, it's because I've looked into his face and he has forgiven me. He set me free. And sometimes we, I had to do it again this year. It was just as a sense. I knew he wanted to do something new with me. And it wasn't like a heavy thing. It was kind of like an expectation. It was almost like I could feel him moving. I remember when my kids were little and we were reading Bible studies and I knew God wanted to move in their lives. And I wrote in my journal, it's like, I can, it's almost like I can feel the Holy Spirit walking the halls by my children's bedroom. It's almost like I can sense God is speaking to my children. I have felt that in my own life, even this year, like, are you ready for something new? I said, oh, Jesus, yes. As we let him set it free at every new stage in our life, there, bring, there comes a deeper joy and a deeper peace, no matter the circumstances. And so here, as we, as we go, as we just go to our song in just a minute, here are new words to pray over uh, this week. Jesus, you're the one who makes us whole bring wholeness to our lives and to our families. Jesus, you are the one who quenches our thirst. We come to you and drink deeply. Fill us with your Holy Spirit so that out of our lives we'll live in life. Jesus, you are the light of the world. Shine your light into our hearts and into our homes. Teach us to follow you. Let no darkness be in our face. Jesus, you are the truth and you set us free. Set our families free from sin, bondage, delusion, anxiety, Thank you that you set us free. We are free indeed. And Jesus, you are the I am. You existed before the world began. You were before Abraham. You sustain all life. Teach us to trust you and to remember that you are the author and finisher of our personal and our redemptive story. We can rest in you. As a, you know, one of the fun things that I thought was really beautiful was with John 4, a lot of the things Jesus says in the temple, he's already said to the woman at the well. And uh, I think it's a beautiful thing, right? That the message is the same for everyone. Whether you're an outcast, whether you're right at the center of power, the message of who Jesus is is the same. He's the living water. He's the great I am. And the hard parts, the beautiful parts, every part, there is Jesus. In all our wounded places, but also in all the places where he wants to take us, there he is. And uh, so that's what I'm praying as we go out into this week. We go out full of hope. And uh, do you know one of the things, um, the very end, but one of the, I was in a conference today on provenient grace, and I was listening to Dr. Bounds talk on provenient grace, and he said, one of the things about grace, prevenient grace, it's the grace that goes before in our lives, and all we can do is respond. We can resist it, or we can welcome him. And he said, it's really up to God what he does in our life when. We don't actually get to decide. We just open ourselves to him and say, Jesus, we're here and we're available. And then we wait to see what he wants to do in our lives. And I thought that was a beautiful witness. It's not, am I doing this right? It's Jesus, you're welcome. And, uh, and I, that's what we want to say this week. So Jesus, thank you that we, in all our wounds and all our shames, stand before you and you say you're, that you are um, There is nothing that can separate you from my love. So Jesus, we declare as a Bible study tonight that you are Lord. And I just pray, Jesus, that we will go out with your living hope in our hearts. That when we declare that Jesus is Lord, um, we are set 
free. So Jesus, we want to walk with you this week. We want to receive your living water. And we want you to be in every moment of our ordinary lives. Would you transform our ordinary lives with your grace? Would you transform our places of pain into places of knowledge and learning and experience, things we can use to help others? And Jesus, will you keep moving us deeper, deeper, deeper into the Father's heart? We love you. Thank you for the privilege of studying your word together. In Jesus' name, amen.